0: fundamentally, this is a fight for equality, you know, so that we can be out there as people in the community, the same as anybody else doing whatever we want to do.
1: Hello, and welcome to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSC, where we have candid conversations about all things disability and NDIS. My name is Evie Norfell, and my co-host today is DSC's Editor-in-Chief, Sarah Gingold. Hi, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. And Our guest today is Christina Ryan, who is the CEO and founder of the Disability Leadership Institute or DLI for short. It's the first organization of its kind globally. It's run by and for disability leaders. It's a supportive community with people in over 20 countries, and it provides training and supports and promotes its members. DLI also run an annual national awards for disability leadership, which we're going to talk about on the podcast today. And the nominations for those awards actually close on Friday, so we've included a link to the show notes as well. Welcome, Christina.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Evie. It's just really fun to be here, yeah.
1: And congratulations on DLI's recent seventh birthday. When I saw that it was your seventh birthday, I thought to myself, in some ways, that's quite a short time and also quite a long amount of time. I'd love to hear from you what change you've seen since DLI was born.
0: Oh, well, I mean, the first thing that happens is it makes you feel a bit old, doesn't it? It's interesting because it is a reflective time having, having a birthday. It, it's that, what have we done? You know, we achieved anything and and yes, we have. And no, we haven't. And I've been talking a lot about that as well in the context at the moment where we're, there's a lot of talk in the disability community about the Royal Commission and the NDIS review. So we're, we're in a kind of a reflective space at the moment. You know, there's clearly some things that have shifted in that seven years. I mean, the big one, of course, is seven years ago we didn't even talk about leadership. It, it wasn't even a discussion point. And it's not in the national strategy because we didn't talk about it back then, you know. it's it's It just wasn't a subject matter. So it is now, and that's a big shift because I really believe, you know, if we start talking about something It changes the kind of conversation, but it also changes the, I guess you might say the psyche, you know, we all start thinking differently about what's possible and what's going on. And, you know, if we start putting those two words in the same sentence, disability and leadership, sooner or later the wider world gets the message that, oh, you mean those useless disabled people can actually do leadership stuff? It's like, yeah, we can. Actually, we can. So that's shifted. In seven years, that's become a much more accepted thing. And I think that's been, for the last four or five years, that's been very much a part of the front end of the conversation, particularly around equality, around being in the room, about us being part of decision-making spaces. makes sense. And it's just amazing that it's the first organisation
2: of its kind globally. That's just such an achievement in and of itself. And that kind of brings me to another thing I thought about DLI, because you focusing on disability leadership is like a very conscious decision that your organization is based on um, an ambitious model of where we want to be. Because when we talk about disability employment, we're often talking about getting people any jobs at all, unfortunately. But I was wondering, like, what made you want to go
0: that ambitious. Oh, I love the fact that you say that it's ambitious. I didn't think of it at the time as ambitious. I think I had I had a tipping point a few years back and it was around the time that we were campaigning for the Royal Commission when it was really the big subject area. So that's close to a decade ago now. It's about eight or nine years ago and it became really clear to me that we can keep talking about entry-level stuff. We can keep talking about getting a job or finding a service service provider or being treated with dignity and respect at school or at work or even just having access to equipment that we need but fundamentally this is a fight for equality you know so that we can be out there as people in the community the same as anybody else doing whatever we want to do so being the drivers being the people who own our own spaces is imperative and that means leadership Mm. so to me leadership is the underpinning it's like the to achieving equality. We're not going to get there without it. We need decision makers. We need people in the rooms who are the trusted experts. We need to be those people. And that's happening in all these other intersectional spaces. But it's not happening in disability. Even when we're talking leadership or being in the room, it's still only in matters that are disability specific. Uh, We still haven't got it into the broader space. You know, so why aren't we vice chancellors of universities or parliamentarians or you know those sorts of
1: things? And it's interesting. Yeah. I notice that sometimes there's a a bit of an assumption that an entry level job is a is a better fit because there's something inherent about leadership that requires this very specific set of something that can't be, you know, compromised or whatever, which from where I'm sitting, it's, you know, as a leader, what I, what I often experience is it's the positions of leadership that are most adaptable. And that's certainly not to say that every position needs to be adapted for a person with a disability. But, you know, if we take a disability service provider, for an example, a support worker needs to do a certain type of job. And there's some flexibility that can be done, but to a certain extent, the job is defined. Whereas we took your diversity masterclass. A few months ago, Sarah and I and our colleague, Jess, and you uh, raised the NDIA CEO job position, which said in the job title, I think this is now going back, that they had to have experience overseeing large service delivery systems. And I really thought about that a lot afterwards because somebody had made an offhand comment in another conversation I'd had about the most important role of CEO of NDIA is culture. I thought that's really interesting. Is that and maybe there was a way to actually craft that job description in a way that the CEO didn't need to have this incredible operational and systemic experience, but they really were the steward of culture, and that they could have come from a different background. So, uh, long long story short, to say I learned a lot in that masterclass, and I think I learned what you were what you were trying to impart. But where I wanted to go to, with that question is a question about the disability sector experience specifically because the DLI includes leaders from all walks of life from all different industries and I would like to believe that the disability sector is a more inclusive industry for disability leaders than others but I also think I'm naive in that belief so I'm really curious to hear from you what are the differences you notice in the experiences of disabled leaders in the disability sector.
0: Yeah and well, let's just observe for the moment that the current CEO of the NDIA is not from a large service division background. How many people are there in the country who run, you know, $30 billion organisations? It's The answer is very few, but most of them are running mining companies. They're not going to move across in the NDIA, are they? Mm. It's interesting because I actually wonder sometimes, you know, I come from a background in, in the disability advocacy sector. And it would appear to me that in some ways the disability services sector is more behind in this regard than than other areas. You know, they're, they're only just hatching up with getting disabled people onto their board. And even then, they're not doing that in a a really considered way. You know, they're just sort of finding someone to be on the board. So there's a lot of work there that needs to be done. And the numbers of people, you know, the latest research, which is only in the last 12 months, is telling us that less than 20% of organisations have actually got executive leadership that disabled people. So, you know, the very organisations that should be most likely to employ disability leaders seem to be almost the least likely to do so. And I think it is mindset stuff. I I genuinely think there's something about the recognition that we are good for more than entry-level work. That tells me a lot about prejudice but it also tells me about what the expectations of disabled people are when we do get a job and the research is also telling us that when people do get a job they often just stay there they don't get advancement they don't get professional development they're not given time to explore other types of work within the organization they basically you get your job that's it and something we know is that I mean there really is no such thing as trickle up diversity you know, if we keep pumping people in at the at the entry level, we're not going to f- suddenly end up with a bunch of people running organisations. We have to bring people in at the top. And what that does mean is we're going to need to have industry mobilised people. So, you know, we've got this in other industries. For example, we've got airline executives in this country now who have no background in airlines. So you can get people to come in and... and move across industries. It happens in a lot of spaces. There's a lot of people that leave the defence force and move across into areas that aren't defence specific, but they actually have skills that translate. So those transferable skills that somehow we're still expecting that disability leadership is going to arrive through pumping more people in at the entry level. And it it hasn't happened in any other field, for any other diversity group. Why will it happen for people with disability? I actually wanted to bring you to a different
2: point because you you did this TED Talk for TEDx Perth and you talked about this thing that we should throw merit-based recruitment at the window and we were discussing that quite a bit on our Slack channels and it was a really like challenging point but also a really good point. I was wondering
0: if you could explain the thinking behind that a little bit more. Yeah, well, it's not my concept. I'm going to make that very clear. I came across it – I did a Westpac fellowship um, a number of years ago and I had, you know, the fortunate moment one day to go to a breakfast run by a bunch of guys called the Champions Change. They're the CEOs of Australia's top companies and the heads of Australia's top agencies, the heads of the Defence Force, all sorts of people like that are in the Champions Change. So they're blokes who want to get gender equality happening. Fundamentally, they're looking at diversity and – they've got resources because of who they are. They've got money for research. They got together with a bunch of of very privileged women, the chief executive women who also have a similar sort of profile, although there's not quite as many of them. And they did this research into what we can do to get more diversity. And they're looking at gender diversity, but more diversity at the tops of organisations and in the top wardrooms of the country. And what they came up against was this concept of merit-based appointment. And it's the problem. It's actually what's in the way of diversity. Because what they discovered is what we mean by merit. So we design a position and we think, okay, here's what you need to be any good at doing this job. You've got to have a degree in that. You've got to have come from this background. So you went to the right school or you belong to the right club. And suddenly you're the right kind of person. And then they call it merit. You tick all the boxes. When in fact, what merit does is it completely squashes diversity. We get candidates who look exactly the same as whoever held the job before. So if we want diversity, we've got to actually get rid of merit. And we can do it very, very simply. We can actually shape what we're looking for around the competence to do a job. So it's not about that particular type of degree or that particular university or going to that private school. It's actually about the competence to do something. I guess it
2: comes down to, though, how you measure competence, like how you work that out. Because it is definitely agreeing with your point about what's wrong with the merit-based system. But having a piece of paper, it looks a bit more like even though we know it doesn't actually mean as much, it looks a bit more objective in a way, whereas judging someone's competence is a very subjective judgment. Especially when we know how flawed hiring and
1: recruitment processes are in general. Yeah. Like it's so hard to create a process that facilitates people to show their competence instead of just talking about it. And so that's why it's easy to go, oh well they went to a university, tick. But yeah, I'm with you. But I wish I wish I had better ways to help facilitate that.
0: One of the best recruitment examples I ever had, I needed a new advocate. Now If we look at disability advocacy, and I'm talking about individual advocacy, so the individual people who support someone to be heard, to navigate a process like the tribunal or getting into the NDIS or whatever, and we can make a hell of a lot of assumptions about what kind of person it takes to be a good advocate. I ended up employing somebody who was 20 years old and in the first year of their social work. But at the time, you know, I wanted someone who would be a good advocate. Now, you can't actually go anywhere in Australia and get a degree in being a disability advocate. It doesn't exist. So there's a lot of things that come into it, like attitude. How does this person look at disabled people? So I've got a couple of nice questions that'll cut in underneath To are you a patronising bastard, which is a technical term. We've got some of those too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, are you one of them or are you actually somebody who's going to listen to the disabled person and, and hear what they have to say? Because that's crucial for a good advocate. See them as a person, yeah. Have you got some kind of concept about disability rights? Have you ever heard of the CRPD? And of course, I'm a disabled person. So if somebody answers those questions in a way that to me seems patronising, my radar going straight off. I'm immediately thinking, well, I'm not sure I want to be dealing with you. So I'm not going to inflict you on any of the people that are using our organization. So that's about attitude, about cultural fit. An advocate needs to be able to get in there and argue a point. Can also check out how they look at a situation and break it down and suss out, what are we dealing with? Because advocates need to be able to do that. And they need to be able to do that on the fly. They're operating in a highly autonomous way. They're usually out and about. They're often on their own with the person that they're advocating with and for. And I ended up appointing this person who was 20 years old. And I remember ringing a colleague who also ran an advocacy organisation and said, I'm about to, like the best candidate seems to be this person who is so young. It just seems like I can't quite believe that they're the right person. And my colleague said to me, if they're the right fit, Christina, they're the right fit. And that was one of the best employment moments I've ever had. And that person was on my team for seven years and they ended up being one of the best policy people in the country when it came to disability rights by the time they'd finished. Mm-hmm. It was astonishing stuff. So we need to be really careful about how we look at qualifications. If going on qualifications, she would never have got the job.
1: We're talking about uh, what makes exceptional disability leaders. And with that in mind, uh, exactly, do you you see my podcasting skills in action? DSC is sponsoring DLI's upcoming national awards for disability leadership. What can you tell us about the awards and how can
0: people nominate a leader? Well, isn't it exciting? It's so exciting that we're, we're in it together, Evie. I'm really thrilled about it. The National Awards for Disability Leadership are about recognising that disability leaders come in all shapes and sizes. They're now in their, I think they're in their seventh year. And when we first started doing the awards, we pulled together a coalition of the other DPOs. So the big national representative organisations. And we had a working group, all disabled people. So for the first time, the awards are actually designed by disabled people and they're for disabled people. So only disabled people can get one. That hasn't been the case before. You know, we've had awards that recognize, um, service providers or people that are individuals that have done work, you know, and that's great. There are plenty of other awards that actually cover off those people, but what we didn't have was recognition for the work of disabled people for disability leaders and we shape the awards around the areas that we are most engaged in. And so there's an Arts Award because we have an incredibly large number of people in the disability community who are in the creative space. They're doing written or spoken word. They're doing visual art, performance arts, all manner of things. Um, And that's hotly contested every year, the Arts Award. uh, Last year we had a producer, someone who set up their own production company. So they run a team of disabled people are singers, and we also had uh, somebody who's a writer, and it's about using their creative talent to change the image or the impression of disabled people, and that became the core theme of the awards, about actually achieving change in the status of disabled people. So that's an underpinning for all of the awards. So there's an award, of course, about rights activism because we have so many people in our community doing that. We've got um, an award for innovation, so changing processes. They might have done a legislative reform, so a change-making person who's changed laws or lobbied the local council to, to get better transport, you know, all sorts of things like that. There's an award for lifetime achievement, which is the legacy award from the original national awards, and that's named after the fabulous Leslie Hall who was a long-time frontline activist in our movement, and a social impact. Uh, the Social Impact Award is actually about using media. So it might be social media, it might be mainstream media, but basically using some sort of getting the word out there mechanism to make change. So there's awards for in all sorts of different spaces. And what we actually know in the disability community is that there's a lot of people behind the scenes. And sometimes it's those people who receive the awards. And that's because they're actually setting the, the groundwork or making the change that allows others to then go on from there, almost a, a staging point for the next iteration or the next phase of change.
1: And so if some of our listeners are listening and thinking, I know somebody who would who would meet some of those criteria, how do they let you know?
0: Get on to the disabilityleaders.com.au website, and head straight to the national awards section and and nominate someone. We've tried to keep the nomination form pretty simple and, uh, yeah, it's a pretty rigorous judging process. So being disabled is not actually going to win you an award because everyone else is too, it's actually about achieving change. So we want to know what people have done to make a difference to the lives of disabled people generally. Fantastic. And we'll include in the sh- uh, link
1: in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Christina, and for letting us oh, partner with you on those wonderful awards.
0: Really fantastic to have the DSC folk um, with us on the awards this year. I'm really thrilled about it. It's been really terrific to talk to you both today. Thank you. Thank
1: you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. You can subscribe if you want to. We'd love you to. Please, teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave me a five-star review, it's not like Countdown to Christmas yet, but we can consider it an early Christmas present. Okay, bye! I like how you said give me a five-star
0: review. (laughs) (laughs)